the moment we start to believe something as concrete, we lose the ability to to wonder, to imagine. Um, and that's the tension that I talk about between creativity and the human condition. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I had a great conversation with Steve Zor, also known as Steve Chapman, who is an artist, writer, and speaker interested in creativity and the human condition. He's spoken all around the world on the subject of human creativity and culture and has exhibited his artwork alongside the likes of Pablo Picasso and David Shrigley. He's a visiting faculty member and a number of Culture Change Master's programs and he says he's at his best when he isn't quite sure what he's doing. I first met Steve about a year ago at an event called Basecamp in something called the Tent of Not Knowing, which we discussed briefly in this episode. Since then, I've enjoyed following his work, including watching his very popular TEDx talk about confronting his inner critic. And we began our conversation talking about a podcast he recently completed called The Sound of Silence, which is a collection of silence recorded face-to-face with over 100 guests over a two-year period. So I started out by asking him what he's learned from listening to The Sound of Silence. Enjoy. One of the early things that I learned is the word silence is woefully inadequate because silence literally means the absence of vibration as detected by an ear. And this is where it starts to get head-hurtingly philosophical. You remove one or two of those, the thing doesn't exist. But the human experience of silence is so much richer than that. And just even looking back at the episodes I'd recorded early on, everyone was a totally different experience, um, dependent on... The person, did I know them, did I not know them, the environment, the state I was in, the mood I was in, what was going on around us. And that's why I recorded with Poppy the Dog for episode 50, because that was totally different again, because I suspected it would be the one that I felt least awkward in. Because I spend a lot of time with Poppy, and I, I'm, I'm never thinking, oh God, I've got nothing to say. Well, why? <laughs> and I'm fascinated, why is that? Why is that? It's another sentient being that understands some words. And so this rich texture of silence and not silence. And if you can imagine a silence, like if we have a silence now, how that would be different if we weren't recording, or if you were alone on a stage in front of people, or if you were just sitting in a prison cell. It's, the meaning is infinite. And that's one of the things I got really fascinated by. And then when people started writing, they'd say, oh, I love this podcast. It's about peace or it's about anxiety or it's about mental health. There was the episode with Simone Leah, her little daughters in the background, like reading from a book. And they said, oh, it's about working parents. Because there isn't a content, because there's a, a structure of two minutes that holds this silence, it can be about whatever you want it to be. It's a void that you pour into it whatever you need in that moment 
And that's become fascinating. And people have said it's the only podcast I listen to where I experience it in my body. I experience awkwardness or I actually feel like I'm there with that person. And I didn't know any of that when I was on that run. Um, and it evolved from there. I'm thinking about my parents because they're kind of lifelong staunch atheists have started going to, they're now retired relatively recently and started going to a Quaker group every week for the last four years or something like that. And I don't, I sort of vaguely know about the Quakers. You, you might know more given that they're your main silent podcast competitors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every Sunday they go and it's a big part of their life now, which has surprised me. I knew they sat in silence and I knew people would take it in turns to say something and you know i knew the sort of basic kind of idea but i don't know why it never occurred to me to ask have you ever said anything dad and i asked him and he said oh no no i've never i've never you know n never felt kind of moved to do that and that was after kind of four years of going it was like what, what are you doing you know surely surely what once in four years you're gonna have something that you might want to share but i don't think it's about that for him i think it's just about their sitting reflecting what whatever whatever he's pouring into it and i'm not entirely sure but i'm sort of fascinated but now whenever i see him i sort of tease him slightly saying have you said anything <laughs> yet in these quake and to my knowledge i haven't asked him in a little while to my knowledge he still hasn't well i went so, i went um, to one um and i'm not i wouldn't describe myself as an atheist but i'm not a religious person and i've been into churches and i've been into mosques and temples and that and I, I i find them fascinating experiences the space the people but i don't sign up to any particular religion um but i went to a quaker meeting because i recorded episode 40 with terry Waite. um so if, if people don't know terry Waite was the special envoy for church of england in the late 80s i think wasn't it and he was a hostage negotiator that got taken hostage in beirut and he was in solitary confinement for five years so oh, I yes, thought, I remember, yeah. And I'd seen Terry speak, and he's he's such a amazing, gentle. I mean, he's huge; he's about six foot five. And I went to I went to Terry's house in in um, Suffolk, and we spent yeah. the entire the, the entire day chatting about stuff. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about Sound of Silence podcast: is Terry and I had some amazing, fascinating conversations, then recorded nothing. And then carried on having the amazing conversations. <laughs> but he he picked me up from the station. And on the way back to the station, he was telling me about the Quakers. Because he's a Christian, but he's also a Quaker. And he says, you should go to a meeting. Uh, you should go to a Quaker meeting. I think you'd find it fascinating. And there's a really old Quaker, uh, a friend's meeting house, they call it. Just around the corner from me. I mean, walked past it every day when my daughter went to primary school. I went one week. And it was it was fascinating. It's one of my fondest religious -y memories I think because you walk in and the rule is the meeting starts the moment the first person enters the room and I went in it's a really old sort of square building I don't know if they all are I've only ever been to one and there was me there was probably someone else a little bit younger than me that had a couple of kids there and most people were sort of 70s 80s and then there's nothing it's just silence and it just struck me that participation, silence is participatory as is speaking. Um, you're participating just with your presence. And then one, um, this little old lady stood up. It is, there's a little Quaker book that you can read for not to work out what to say. I think the, the idea is when something arises, you speak it. And this little old lady stood up and said, 
Adventures so important. We should have more adventures. Adventures is what life's about. And then sort of sat down. And then there's nothing for ages. And then this little old man stood up at the end and said, the world is not ours. We are as much a part of nature as everything else. And then sat down. And then whoever's, I don't know how it works, whoever's in charge after the hour said, right, that's it. Um, and then afterwards they said to me, that's quite a busy meeting, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but the thing that struck me about it, it was just, there wasn't an awkwardness. Because this is one of the mm. other the shades of silence that I spoke about. If silence is legitimised, we're more comfortable with embracing it. It's like if there's a two-minute silence. I've been in big corporate head offices when there's been Armistice Day, and the entire place stops, and people aren't freaking out, going, what's going on? It's weird. It's because it's been legitimised. But then we had the community notices, which normally in, and I'm not making it better or worse, I'm just comparing the difference, but normally in Church of England it would be about a jumble sale or some people that are ill or wanting to raise money for the church steeple, that type of thing. And the community notices were amazing. So again, another elderly person stood up and said, right, there is a an arms fair at Docklands in two months' time. <laughs> Um, the friends, i.e. the Quakers, are going to have a peaceful presence there to protest because it, I mean it literally was an arms fair. It's, it's amazing. I, I don't know if you walk around and go, "Oh, that's a great bomb." Imagine the amount of people we could wipe out with that. It's horrible. And they said, "So, if anyone would like to contribute some protest art," and I'm just sitting there thinking, "What?" And then the best thing was, they said, "There's a collection for friends who may like to get arrested to make their point, and this will cover their bail." And there's all these little old men and women going, yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, this is activism arising from silence. And it was amazing. And it, yeah, it was moving and amazing. Did you go to the arms fair? No, Did I didn't. Because then what happened, I went, as soon as we were out of the Quaker meeting room, we went to another little room where they had tea and biscuits. And then it all started to feel a bit churchy for me because they were telling me all the things I could be involved in and all the things that I could do. And I thought, oh, I don't like being part of anything. So I never went back. But I would go back purely for that experience of the silence. It was so potent. And I realized one of the things that, particularly if I'm working uh, with individuals or organizations that I'm attuned to, is how much aboutism there is. So if it's an organization that wants to work on becoming more creative, is all the work that we're doing talking about becoming creative versus being creative and experimenting? And it made it struck me that most of the other experiences that I'd had with religion or in organizations were aboutism but the Quakers were actually doing stuff it was a live experiment they weren't talking about you must be good to your fellow man they were actually activists they were brilliant and I, I would never look a little old elderly person in my town shuffling around the same again I see them as like uh like an OOP Banksy or someone like that now when I see them so it reframed my how I potentially may write off people because of how they look and how old they are again the thought that's in my head hearing you tell that story is have you ever been to an alcoholics anonymous meeting sorry you might not want to disclose this publicly no. if you have but i but i have once right. no i haven't and because my step-grandfather who died many years ago struggled with alcohol and i'll make a leap in a minute because i saw that you've recently posted that sobriety is an act of rebellion yeah. which i'm interested to talk yeah, to you about yeah. but anyway just quickly so this was i think i was a student so this is like 25 years ago 
And my step-granddad was American and didn't travel that often, but he was in the UK and came to visit me when I was at university, stayed in a little B&B. And he hadn't drunk for years, but he found travel stressful. So he wanted to go to an AA meeting, which he does regularly. He, well, he did regularly back home um, just to sort of help him with the, you know, the stress of traveling. But he didn't want to go alone. So he said, well, just come along. And you're not supposed to just go and observe. You're supposed to participate. But he said, oh, the only condition of being in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting is you want to kind of, you want to drink less. And he said, you want to drink less, don't you? And it's like, well, well okay, then I was sort of supporting my granddad. And so we went along and I, we sat in a circle and, you know, people were sharing some pretty amazing stories. And my grandfather didn't know anyone because he was, you know, come from a completely different country. And then it was my, t and he told me in advance that if you didn't want to say anything, you didn't have to say anything. So um, when it sort of came around to my turn, I just, I can't remember if I said anything at all or if I just sort of sat in silence, but people interpreted my silence <laughs> as, well, well, I don't know how people interpreted my silence, but anyway, it's just quite a vivid memory and and it's probably the most um connected i felt to him actually in my life just that one experience of sitting in a circle talking about sobriety well there's something in what you've said that's lovely is around that that participatory act of bearing witness and not knowing at the same time and i i would uh, goosebumps as you were saying because i could imagine how powerful that silence was more so than saying some eloquent quote about about overcoming adversity and then that's how multi-layered it is is you reminded me of lots of experiences of recording this that you were imagining what people were imagining about your silence so you get into this whole thing and they may have been thinking oh he's not ready to talk or they may have been thinking this is normal or we don't know but you get this sort of projection and transference coming out well, I was thinking they, they know that I shouldn't be here because I'm, but how would they know that, you know? And so, so I was, I, you know, my inner critic was quite sort of, my inner uh, fraud was quite, quite noisy. I was going to say, I, I spent um, three years with a good friend of mine who's an ordained Zen monk and a therapist and a coach. We facilitated dialogue, like Bohmian dialogue around the world. Um around the subject of difference and belonging. So it's a corporate piece of work that was arguably about female leadership numbers. But because we approached it in this dialogic way, it was so much more than that. And the most potent moments were in a circle, and we'd spend eight hours in this largely unstructured dialogue, was when there'd be nothing. And the most intense moments as a facilitator were when there was nothing, and everyone in the group is looking to me and to Claire to do something. And then there's that whole part of me saying, they're paying you lots of money to do this. You need to do something. And then just listening and thinking instinctively, there is nothing to say at the moment. And just sitting for longer and longer. And it was excruciating and brilliant. And it was always in those moments of sitting in a discomfort for a little bit longer than normal that something new emerges. And particularly sitting in the discomfort of disagreement and difference and confusion and all of those things, something different always emerged. But it would have been so much easier to avoid it and pull back from it. I first met you in the tent of not <laughs> yeah. knowing. Is that what it was the called? The tent of not knowing, yeah. At this base camp event last year, which was great. And 
you would just randomly put this tent in the corner of the room called the tent of not knowing and invited people to sit in it with you and we had a chat and you were drawing on balloons and I didn't quite know what was going on but it was uh probably five minutes ten minutes it was a it was a, it was a short thing but anyway it made an impression on me and you describe yourself as kind of being playful with not knowing and I'm very drawn to that as an idea because I'm also maybe not as playful but I'm very drawn to kind of being comfortable with not knowing and using that somehow can you just say a bit more about not knowing and unlearning and some of these concepts that you've talked about and I'm just keen to get your take on some of that it's more than an interest for me it's I think the a shift point for me was when I started when I first met Professor Bill Critchley, who got me into Ashridge, who founded the Masters I was on. He was sort of like a mentor of mine. He's still a good friend. And hearing him speak around organisational change. So this will go from tangible to philosophical quite quickly. But I think the, I think the lineage is really important. Because I used to be in an organisational change role and get taught loads of different models for how to manage change. And this was an organisation of 100,000 people. And I was responsible for culture change programs for 33,000 of them. And I used to get these models and think, yeah, this makes total sense. And then they would never work. They would never work. It's like, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And then this happens. And of course, I went into my usual default thinking, well, I'm just rubbish. I can't make these models work. Everyone else seems to be able to make them work. Even in a small factory of 100 people, it never seemed to work. And then I went to a talk that Bill Critchley did completely by accident. And he was talking about this idea of organisations as complex, live, emergent social processes, where there's this dance of interaction that is both predictable and unpredictable, controllable and uncontrollable. It's riddled in paradox. And I, I was just sitting there thinking, oh, my God, it's not me that's rubbish. It's these models. They're, they're like this linear description of, of the world. And there's a brilliant, there's a, I think he was a sociologist or a philosopher called Alfred North Whitehead called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. As human beings, our absolute desire to make things seem more concrete, because we're, we're a fragile, confused, weird creature standing on a rock flying around an exploding fireball. It's quite good for our sanity to try and make the world seem more predictable. But in organisational life, that manifests in terms of these really reified structures. So that led me into this whole interest of, ah, this is all illusionary. The organisation doesn't really exist. We pretend it exists. It's just this live patterning of human beings. Then that led me into getting interested in spontaneity. And I wrote my dissertation on spontaneity. And my research was to learn and perform improv. And I, I did it the hard way. I learned and performed musical improv on stage. So not only do you not know what you're doing, you have to be vaguely in time and in tune and rhyme and things. And there was something... It was, I've never taken crack, but I imagine it was like that. It's, um, <laughs> it was like there's something really addictive about being feeling like I'm about to fall off the edge. <laughs> and through that, I think it's, it's an experience of not knowing together performing improvisation. And then I realized, well, I got less interested in performance improvisation. I got more interested in there is only spontaneity in improvisation. We don't have a script for where we are now. Um, even if you did have a script, you've never lived that moment before because it can be quite a threatening thing. I think it taps into a lot of our existential angst, our fear of one day we will no longer exist, all of those things. But I think you can explore the subject in incredibly playful ways. 
art for me, the intention of art is to create moments of doubt where you doubt the reality as you've come to believe it. So the tent of not knowing, for example, at base camp is there's some incredible discussions going on. But instinctively, I, I could feel that they were sort of calcifying. They were becoming concrete. And it's like, I think the moment we the moment we start to believe something as concrete, we lose the ability to to wonder, to imagine. Um, and that's the tension that I talk about between creativity and the human condition. Creativity is our imagination's pull towards the infinite and the amorphous and the weird and the wonderful. And the human condition is our logic, our reasons pull towards the concrete and tangible. And that tangible is always so much more appetizing, um, even even for me when I, when I do this weird work. So I'm always interested in finding something that gently moves us towards a place of not knowing. It's I've started calling it re-weirding the world, because if we start to re-weird the world, more possibilities emerge. And I think finding playful ways to do that, such as the tent of not knowing, such as the Sound of Silence podcast, such as the conference that I did was the opposite of TED, where the speakers didn't know what they were talking about. It has no intention other than to just invite people into this place of not knowing that allows them to wonder more, allows them to be curious. So I don't know if that makes any sense. That was sort of my my transition. And I think because I spent 20 years in this illusory corporate world not making the corporate world bad for me having worked in that for so many years this is sort of like a pendulum back the other way like imagine coming out of a long-term relationship and then suddenly being free spirit and sleeping around everywhere it's similar to that for me i'm just more i'm less interested in the concrete in the tangible in the things that give a guaranteed return on investment which isn't a brilliant way to run a business but it (laughs) i find it enlivening I find it exciting. I find it an adventure. I liked what you said earlier about the Sound of Silence podcast, where it was it was more than you could possibly sort of imagine that it could be, and so by sort of getting out of the way, then, yeah, those possibilities yeah. emerge. And it's, it's undertaking activities, and I call them projects, that don't aim to produce anything. But there is a process, and the process is really important. There's, congruence is really important to me, that every element of something is embodying the thing that it's interested in. So the amount of things on Sound of Silence, the amount of sponsorship offers that I got, it would have taken away from the essence of, no, this is not about anything. It's not pinned to anything. It's, it's not for profit. But you talked earlier about aboutism, and I'm interested, you're, you're really, you said you're really interested in the process. But somebody said to me last year, a guy called Tom Farrand, that when you have a sort of five-stage process or a three-stage process, what inevitably we do as human beings is think, are we on stage three or, or are we ready to move to stage four? And it sort of takes you out of the experience and it takes you to this kind of meta observation of where you are in the process. And I think that links to what you were saying as well. So how do you, if you're interested in process, which I think I am as well, how do you make sure that you don't just stay at this kind of meta aboutism level, observational level, and you stay in the experience? Well, I think I'm probably going to contradict myself, which I do a lot of the time, and say it's not even about process, it's practice, as in a practice of 
And I think that's the thing is if my practices would be towards not knowing um, this idea of doing it just for nice, just for me. No, it's not for any other reason than it's my own exploration. Each move in each moment and each instinct is an embodied thing. It's not a it's not a cognitive thing. And by just staying close to those practices, and I sort of naturally do it more now, the process evolves in that way. And then you can look back and go, I mean, I can talk about Sound of Silence and say, yeah, these are all the things I learned from it. This is what I got from it. This is how it worked. This is what it was about. But it was only when the last episode I recorded, I pressed stop on the recorder. I then thought, ah, now I understand it. Literally, in that moment. It's like, oh, now now I know how to talk about it. Now I know how to sell the story of it. Now I know how to write the Arts Council funding application for whatever comes next. I think that's an amazing thing. It's like, it's like why I don't like doing art commissions. I make to work out what I'm making when I've made it. It's, it's so much more exciting that way. I'll start with a line and a doodle and then it will end up... I'll go, oh, look, it's this. I did one... I don't know if it's gone out yet. There was one, a cartoon of, of Dracula. People on the podcast won't be able to see it. I don't think it's gone on Instagram yet. But it's um, Dracula having a job interview that's going really badly. Um, <laughs> and that came about... So this is a brilliant example of the process. It came about where... A song came on my Spotify playlist by a folk artist called Richard Dawson, and that reminded me of the Wicker Man film, um, some music in the Wicker Man film, which made me think of, oh yeah, the Wicker Man, I must watch that again, that made me think of Christopher Lee. And I thought Christopher Lee would be fun to draw. And I tried drawing Christopher Lee, and it came out very badly. And so I didn't want to throw it away because I project sentience onto everything. So I didn't. I felt sorry for the paper. I felt sorry for this badly drawn Dracula. So I didn't want to throw it away. So I drew a body on him and I messed up his hands. And his hands, as you'll see, uh, Roland, in the picture, look like they're sort of ringing, like an anxious. And I thought, this is an anxious vampire. I think that he's he's having he's being put under pressure. What if he's having a job interview to be the in-house vampire for a big company and then it evolves from there? I'm not saying that's necessarily a good or bad cartoon, but it, it sort of shows when I'm in that sweet spot of that process, it's allowing it to un unravel or unfurl um, without any intention. It reminds me of in the liminal community that I'm part of, we've got a Slack group and we've got a random channel for when people want to post something that you know, doesn't fit any of the other channels. And then someone posted something the other day saying, I'm trying to win the prize for the most random thing ever posted in the random channel. And then there was a little kind of meta conversation that ensued about how what he posted connected to something else and something else. And it just got me thinking that something seems random or you, usually you can make a connection. But it was like actually quite hard to come up with something that's completely random and un unconnected with other stuff that you're thinking about and talking about. You know, we are pattern making machines. Absolutely, or and I think that's that's a curse and also a gift. It's when I design workshops or I'm doing corporate work. It's always right. What's the what's the sweet spot of just enoughness here, which is just enough structure. Now, having a blank sheet of paper, I don't find stimulates creativity. Just a blank sheet of paper and a pen, and someone say, right now, do something. Because constraint is really important. So I'm interested in what is just enough structure to to allow us to feel safe enough physically and psychologically and have enough of a navigation aid 
And I always talk about like tools and models and org charts. They're just navigation aids for this messy experience. But just enough to leave everything else up for grabs because people can't tolerate a lack of meaning and connection, so they'll invent it. And if it's a, a workshop about transformation or innovation or creativity, then you don't want it to be too structured. And people will always do that. I don't know if you've played the chair game with Rob or with one of the other chair game enthusiasts. It's a really simple game that involves chairs. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And the way that I play the chair game, I say the only purpose of the chair game is to play the chair game. And there's some simple constraints around the speed of walking, around what certain people can do, and that's it. And I'm keen to emphasise the only purpose is to play it. If we're playing it, we're achieving the purpose. And I've played it around the world with with corporate and non-corporate groups. And within a few minutes, there is an entire rule set. There is a structure, there is a goal, there is an objective, there are measures that emerge. And I've not I've not said any of them. And it is just that is there is a comfort. There is a comfort in it. And so I'm interested in like I say these projects that stimulate doubt or reweird the world in such a way that people can make their own sense of them. And it's really difficult because I've got a very strong be liked, be loved driver. I want everyone to love everything that I do and because it satisfies some unfulfilled childhood need in me, obviously. But then that's not only unrealistic, it's unhelpful because as long as it stimulates something, as long as it disturbs something, whichever way it goes, be that good, bad, hate it, love it, what it that's irrelevant, really. It's, it's shifted something. That's why I don't particularly, I'm not a fan of, I respect it, a fan of art that looks like real things. I think I might as well go and look at the real thing or look at the photo. I, I like art that that's slightly off the real thing, that makes me go, oh, right, maybe the world is actually weirder than I perceive it. I love the way you're talking about this kind of playful approach to not knowing. But one thing it reminds me of, which I don't really like, and I'm just curious about your feeling, is this kind of post-truth world that we're sort of living through right now. And I think it's connected somehow. I just wonder how it is connected. Uh, the distrust of experts, the uh, uh, hopefully outgoing American president is you know, the foremost pioneer of some of these techniques. Uh, how, how does this not knowing and this playfulness with not knowing sit with truth and science and objective reality, which has had a bit of a beating in the last however many years? I don't know. How do you how do you? Yeah, I mean, my, my very things? short answer is I have absolutely no idea. But the things that it stimulates, because I, I genuinely don't know. I always struggle with descriptions of things as pre and post, even post-punk as a genre of music. I listen to it. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> but it's exactly this. It's you used to get this when I used to teach on the Masters at Ashridge, when we talk about culture or, or organizations and human societies as being this live and interactive process of relating, of, of enabling and constraining of this dance of status, of um, status over or status under, which we all have going on at the moment in a very subtle way, otherwise we wouldn't be able to have a conversation. And that how through that process norms and cult values and traditions emerge, and that's what we then perceive as concrete. The biggest hang-up with students that didn't get that perspective was thinking that that's a tool or a process that you apply, or it's good or bad. And... I'm keen to emphasize it's a description of the isness of things. It was the same process that led to World War II and the Holocaust and all of those things that has led to incredible movements and advances. 
And I was thinking the other day, I do a talk about the importance of the outsider in society to disrupt. Trump is an amazing outsider. He embodies absolutely everything that I've said in that talk. So the thing that doesn't sit right with me is, does it sit with my ethics or not? The process is the same, I think, if that makes sense. It is, it is the same thing. And I was really frustrated that I'm sure some senior Tory party member follows me on Twitter because they keep nicking my ideas. So firstly, Gove came out around the time of Inexpert and said, we're fed up with the words of experts. And then Cummings had his wanted weirdos, misfits and all of that at the time that I started doing my Outsiders Welcome talk. That's why I don't have an answer, because, yeah, it's the same process. I think the thing that I'm trying, that I'm interested in, is those that stand for uh, equality, those that don't have a voice, those that want to challenge establishment thinking, to nurture this way of perceiving and acting in the world as being incredibly potent. Because I guess, I guess the mismatch, if you imagine everyone's doing it, those in power already have more status to make it work for them. So it's harder work for those that want to disrupt the establishment. And in in all times of revolution and all times of uh, sorry, in all times of dictatorship and oppression, there tends to be a counter rise of like some artistic renaissance. Because the brilliant thing about the artists and the weirdos and the misfits and the playwrights and the poets is they move in mysterious ways that that's difficult to predict. So I don't know if that makes any sense. It's it's the same process the question, the difficult question, if I'm making myself completely agnostic here, is I judge the stuff that doesn't sit right with my morals as being the process isn't for that. But essentially, it's a human process. I, I tread really carefully when saying that because I try to step back from looking at it as an anthropologist, but then very, very keen to say I don't, I don't support Trump. I don't support any of these things, but I can see it's the same process. That's one of the reasons why I called this community that I'm part of liminal is because it is that space of possibility that could easily go to hell in a handcart or there could be brilliant, wonderful new ideas or opportunities that emerge. And, you know, both of those things are true. They're two sides of the same coin. So they're sort of inextricably linked. And that's what's fascinating about this time and kind of liminal spaces, but also, yeah, the, the downsides well, as well. it's so. the same process that created things as they are now can be used to unravel the things as they are now. I think it's, it's that. One of the things that I learned in those three years of dialogues was, and it's really difficult, is the moment we other the other and make them wrong, we become somewhat impotent. And that, that's so difficult. I want to absolutely make the other wrong. But I think there's a distinction between agreement, acceptance and allowing. So agreement would be someone with a different opinion. So let's use Trump as an example, because um, hopefully we won't have him as an example to use for much longer. I could say I agree with Trump, which I'm saying for the purposes of this illustration of example. I could say I agree with Trump or I don't agree with Trump. Then there's this whole idea of accepting. It could be that I don't agree with him, but I accept that given his life circumstances and where he is and his makeup, I can accept that that is his opinion. And then the allowing is that this is the very Zen dialogic space of is allowing myself to know that that is true for him and other people. The moment we start to, is a similar thing with Brexit. I did a socio-drama with Brexit, which is, um, someone else ran it, which is to step into the shoes of the others. And I, I voted to, to remain. And I stepped into the shoes of a, um, a staunch Brexiteer, um, of which some of my family are. 
and I know that they're nice nice people. I could easily say they're misguided, uneducated fools. But I stepped into the shoes of a Brexiteer in a sociodrama and totally embodied it. And the thing that came out of my mouth is, I'm fed up with you lot telling me I'm uneducated and unintelligent. Like, fuck you. And that was so powerful because I thought, yeah, that's probably pretty much what they think. And for me, it, it started to show that this is not as black and white and I'm not a political animal, but the, the, the right, the far right's immediate default to reach to aggression and violence and the far left's immediate thing to reach to education and intellect, they end up mutually reinforcing each other. Until you can literally see through the eyes of the other person, it doesn't mean you're agreeing. You can't get anywhere. Because in the moments of dialogue, the most challenging moments of dialogue we had were when there was absolutely almost violent disagreement. And I remember Daniel Barenboim, the composer, did a lot of work with um, Israelis and Palestinian schoolchildren. A quote that's always stuck with me was, he said, progressive dialogue is as much about careful talking as it is about often painful listening. And it's the often painful listening that I find hardest, but that's where you get breakthroughs, I think. Thank you, Steve. I really enjoyed that and was struck by what he said about the intention of art being to create moments of doubt in the realities that we've come to believe. And that the moment we start to believe something is concrete, we lose the ability to wonder. And I also liked what he said about the fact that I make to work out what I'm making once I've made it. In other words, to learn by doing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. And if you'd like to find out more about Steve, then I'll share a few links in the episode description and you can follow up and find out more. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems that fall between the cracks of existing organizations, places, and institutions. Our community and this podcast is supported by our patrons, and so I'd particularly like to thank and welcome our latest community members, Greg Spencer, Rob Dawson, Noel Dye, and Davina Burgess. Thanks again to all of you for your support and participation so far. To find out more about Liminal, or to join our community, please visit www.weareliminal.co forward slash community. And before we go, please can I ask that you like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on embracing the unknown and connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.